Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Yordana Osband, here with my friend and Chavruta, Ann Gordon. Today, we will be discussing Shabbat, Dap Lamedavav, 36. So this is a Dap where the first half is the basic conclusion, second parak of Bava Mavlikin, and the next uh, Amud is the beginning of the third parak. So I'm going to close this up on parak Bet, and we had had a discussion on the previous Dap um, about the tekiah shofar, the blow the shofar that would take place um, before Shabbat began. And it's into an interesting sort of side point before the end uh, or to conclude with this parak. Umay shofar, nami chatzotzrot. So it says, what is the shofar that was mentioned in the previous brisa? It can refer to the trumpet. Um, so remember, there were trumpets that were blown sometimes, the chatzot usually in times of war, but other uses in the Beit HaMikdash. And then there was a shofar. So Rav Chisa says that there were three objects that their names were changed since the Beit HaMikdash was destroyed. And so what were those words? Right. So one of these, so the trumpet that was called a shofar and a shofar was called a trumpet. And then they wanted to know, the Gemara asked, what's the practical difference, whether a shofar is called a shofar or whether it's called a trumpet? So the Gemara says it's really, it, it, it's practical in terms of uh, Rosh Hashanah, right? We would never call the shofar that we use on Rosh Hashanah a shofar, a chatzot's throat, right? We would never call it a trumpet. We would only call it a, uh, we would only call it by its name, by a shofar. And then the Gemara goes through, what were the other objects? Arava, tzapsapfa, right? So the willow, the arava, right? Which is one of the arbaminim, one of the four species that we use on Sukkot. Uh, normally we call it an arava, but it also could be called a tzapsapfa. Um, and that that name also became different. And again, it asks, lamay nafkamine, what's the practical difference? And it says for lulav, right? Because... When we're talking about lulav, we want to be specific that we're talking about the actual lava um, and not this other plant, which could also be, which was a tzapsafa, which could sometimes also refer to the arava to the willow. Um, and then the third one was the patura. And so that was, uh, patura was, um, was a type of very large table. Um, but then there also was something called a pit, uh, piturata, and again, what the what's the significance? Right. If you're selling something, if you're selling something, you need to be specific what the actual item is, is that that you're actually selling. And, and then Abaye comes and he adds um, a different one, uh, which was the Beikase uh, and the Huvile, right, which was in later generations. Um, and this has to do with something about Kashras. And finally, Ravashi concludes and says that we also have uh, this. Babel and Borsif, um, that there was a city in biblical times that was called, uh, that was called Babel, could, later on was called Borsif, and Borsif was called Babel. Um, I just want to go back to the beginning of this and how this starts off, um, which is that really the first three that we talked about, it specifically says that Rav Chista mentions that these were things where we didn't, weren't as specific with the name once the Beit HaMikdash was destroyed. Now, the shofar and the lulav one, I understand. I didn't quite understand the table. Um, and I wasn't quite sure if the table was something that was specifically used in Yerushalayim or in the Beit HaMikdash. I couldn't actually find um, too much about that. Um, but I think what's interesting is it's the idea here is that once 
things fall out of use. In other words, we're not doing things the way that we're supposed to be doing them as they would have been done in the um, Beit HaMikdash, right? So some of the nuances of language around some of those items starts to actually get lost. And it's sort of in a way, in later generations, we're not as careful um, or we sort of see a change in the language and we sort of start renaming things um, because like the Chatzotzerot weren't really used anymore once the Beit HaMikdash was destroyed. So you sort of could just call a shofar a Chatzotzerot or a Chatzotzerot a shofar. Or, you know, maybe I think this also reflects something about the Lulav that maybe it was more difficult to do once the Beit HaMikdash was destroyed. And again, the name for the Arava itself, uh, you know, we were not as careful with. So this was a theme that I think we saw in the whole parak itself, um, which was really about naming things, right? Naming wicks, uh, naming types of oils, and that a lot of these practical halachas were impacted by which, again, with the conclusion of Eric, right, that language seems to change during the generations. Um, and the Gemara making a point to say, were the halachic cases where we actually do have to pay very careful, careful attention to the language itself. We do. And I think that um, the fact that the Gemara gives us, like takes the time to point that out is particularly helpful at this kind of remove of generations when we, we know that we don't always know what they mean, right? We spend a lot, we've talked about that. You and I have talked about that a lot over over these yay, these few months, right? And um, and the fact that the Gemara itself is talking about the fact that the language changes and the words change, and then you have to worry about, well, what does it really mean is, I think, one of the biggest challenges in in learning something from a different era, right? Which, like, no matter how much we keep it alive, we're still always paying attention to those changes of language. Not just in the, not just these particular words where where they've given us the definition, right? But you know, how many times have we heard people say like, you know, Sapphire is very wonderful, but I don't think that the translation here works with the thing that I understood it to be over there, right? I'm not knocking Safaria here at all. I'm saying translation is interpretation, right? Like, and we know that. And the Gemara, is, the Gemara knows it too. Okay, so now we're going to jump into Perik Kira. Um, Kira means a stove. And let's, you know, we'll stay here. You know, Yerdana, you should. Hadran Allah, Bama yes, Madlikin. Hadran Allah, Bama Madlikin. On to Parak Gimel. <laughs> no okay, there we go. Because you really, you cl- no, but yeah, you closed yeah, it yeah. off, right? So, okay. Now, for all that we thought, or that I thought, perhaps, that Bama Madlikin, Bama Madlikin is a very familiar text from davening, from the Friday night davening, but the intricacies of the candlelighting and the wicks and the oils and all of this, you know, gets a little technical, um, I'm not sure that it isn't, you know, beat out by this next Mishnah. Let's see how we can, let's, let's try. Kira shehisikua bakash ubegvava. So you have a stove. And of course, the whole point is that it's lit on Arab Shabbat. And you, the fuel of it is straw, hisikua, bakash, kash is straw, ubegvava, rakings like, you know, stuff, I don't know, leaves, twigs, something that's collected out in the field. No, So then once now this it's lit before Shabbos, right? You can put up you can put your cooked food. No You can put the cooked food on, on top of this fire on Shabbos, meaning the fire has been going from beforehand. You can put your cooked food on top of it on Shabbat. 
בגפת ובעצים לא ייתן עד שיגרוף. Okay, but if your if your stove was lit with, and now this is the technical part that again we have to know what the words mean. I'm not even sure if I know how to pronounce this word. P O M A C E, pomace is the translation. Pulp that remains from sesame seeds, olives, and the like after the oil is squeezed from them, and if it was lit with wood, right? Lo yitain adshi yigrof. Then you can't put your food on top of them until after you've swept out the coals from the stove. Um, it seems to me that this is because it's um, a much more ignite, like it's, there's more action in this fire uh, because of the oil. I may have made that up, meaning that, but that is my impression. Okay. Or and, until you've, um, until you've placed the ashes on the coals. Beit Shammai Omrim, Chamin, Aval Lo Tavshil. Beit Shammai says that if you have, like, if you've swept away the coals, then what can you do? You can put hot water on it, right? Because it's already hot. You're not cooking it additionally. You're not adding to the cooking. But don't put a cooked food there, according to Beit Shammai. Tavshil here being the cooked food. Ubeit Hillel Omrim, Chamin Vitavshil. Of course, Beit Hillel takes a, a position in contrast to Beit Shammai. And in this case, they are more mekel, and they say you can put either hot water or also the cooked food. Beit Shammai Omrim, Notlin, Aval Lo Machzirin. So Beit Shammai says, you can take something off the stove, a pot that's been on the stove, but you cannot return it to the stove. And Beit Hillel says, you could even return it. Now, these, uh, this discussion is kind of the crux or the backbone of all of the issues of cooking on Shabbos. And two main, main discussions are right there in the Beit Hillel, Beit Shammai dis- uh, dispute at the end. Uh, the terms in halacha are shehia and hachazara. Shehia means can you leave something on the flame uh, over Shabbos once you know that's begun from before Shabbos, and hachazara is it's been on the flame and now you take it off for whatever reason to serve. Let's say, can you put it back on the flame? And you know this runs through I don't know reams and reams of Shabbos halacha books because cooking on Shabbos or making sure not to cook on Shabbat is uh, very key in how people observe Shabbat with festive meals and, you know, you want warm food and you want to make sure that you're not actually cooking, but how do you warm food up without cooking and so on? So this is one of the possibilities. Can you leave your food on? That's one way to leave it, you know, without wrecking it, you have to be careful, but that's one way. And then another way is if you can take it off, but then put it back on the flame. If it's been on the flame since before Shabbos, and then you could return it. And Beit Shammai says, nope, you could only leave it on from beforehand, and then you could take it off the stove if you want. But you may not return it. And Beit Hillel says, yep, you could even do hachzara. It's the Mishnah. We don't pass him by the Mishnah, but this is the these are the pillars of this discussion. I think these are just good concepts for us to be familiar with. Um, we're going to see a lot more of this on the next staff. Um, and I think the other thing to pay attention to is just how the Gemara here sort of gives two different reads of this Mishnah based on whether you leaving the pot or based on whether it's returning the pot. And again, these are concepts with cooking that we'll see over and over again when we continue our discussion of Hilchot Shabbat. So with that, we'll end. Uh, that's our tap for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Uh, leave us a comment on our Facebook page, Talking Talmud. We look forward to having, uh, well, I guess to learning with you uh, in Zoom person on April 12th. And until tomorrow's death, go and learn.